you for uh, coming out on short notice uh, today uh, to talk about the economy. I think it's uh, gone from being one of the issues that uh, people think about from time to time to being the uh, absolute center stage. It's, uh, uh, it's uh, hard to remember uh, a, a point in time where there has been more concern about the direction that, that our economy is headed uh, or in attempting to think of solutions uh, uh, that will prevent uh, the worst from, from happening. Um, I think we're very lucky today to have uh, uh, two distinguished uh, guests to help us discuss this and take apart the issues. We're going to start off with Ellen Hughes-Cromwick, who is the chief uh, economist for Ford Motor Company. That's not just for here in the United States, but worldwide. Uh, she's got her eye on uh, economies uh, uh, all the way around the world. Uh, and she is also not only the chief economist for Ford Motor Company, but she's president of the National Association for a Business uh, Economist right now. So she really represents, I think, uh, uh, a perspective that, that she has a perspective that represents a, a broad base of the business community in the, in the United States and, and the view uh, of what's happening with the economy. Also uh, with us today is Jim Horney. Uh, Jim is an old friend of mine. He's uh, part of a group of uh, budgeteers. We get together and have conversations that no one else in the world could understand to, and <laughs> take pride on it. Uh, but uh, uh, Jim was uh, with the uh, – he, he worked for the budget committees in both the House and Senate, uh, and he was with the uh, Congressional Budget Office and in, in, uh, uh, a chief analyst there. Uh, he's now with the Center on Budget Priorities, uh, budget, and and budget and Policy Priorities, uh, as uh, as their chief uh, fiscal affairs person. Uh, so we're going to start off with uh, with Ellen, uh, and uh, then and then Jim, and then I will make a presentation. Thanks. Great. Thank you very much. Welcome this morning. I appreciate the invitation to talk to you a bit about the fiscal stimulus prospects in the package. And what I'd like to do uh, is first start with a quick summary of the economic outlook. I think that might set the stage for some comments with regard to uh, what a package might look like and what are some of the principles around that, that type of package. So if I could uh, go to the first slide. And, uh, you know, we're, <laughs> we're out there in the battleground, so to speak, of the economy, being at, uh, one of the, in one of the sectors that has been most severely affected by the financial crisis. Uh, we do expect this downturn to continue through the first half of this year. In our current forecast for the U.S., we have a peak to trough decline in real GDP of about 3% uh, now. That would uh, make it one of the uh, most severe economic downturns in the post-World War II period. Uh, we saw uh, specifically across the board, not just in autos but in other important sectors, a severe contraction that began to accelerate as the financial crisis persisted into the third quarter of 2008. And I'll give you one statistic to highlight that. 
after the uh, Lehman Brothers failure in September, uh, vehicle sales fell at an annual rate by 2 million units in one month from September to October. For total sales, we went from 12.9 million units to 10.9 million units in just one month. And we have a proprietary database that goes back to uh, the 40s and, and 50s. And it's very rare to see such a marked decline in selling rates for vehicles. Given the size of our vehicle stock out there, you might be aware it's about 240 five million uh, units on the road. So that does uh, portray what we saw, which was this beginning stage of a so-called negative feedback loop. As you can see here on the second bullet, new vehicle sales then for the second half of last year fell at an annual rate of 45%. That was the most pronounced drop off since mid-1980. And the reason that's important is because in mid-1980, for those of you who are uh, good students of uh, policy, that was a period when uh, Congress had enacted consumer credit controls. And they were put in place for a period of about three months and a few days, finally repealed in early July of 1980. And, uh, you know, of course, they were designed with good intent, tent, intentions, uh, from the standpoint of, you know, wanting to begin to arrest the very high double-digit inflation environment that had resulted from uh, the policies put in place in the latter part of, of the 1970s. So um, this is the most severe since that credit shock, which again indicates the extent to which this economy has been uh, very severely affected by the credit crisis. In terms of the near-term forecast, we think there's the most pronounced weakness expected in the first half of this year. And of course, you probably saw the job numbers this morning. It does uh, very clearly indicate the need for timely and significant fiscal stimulus. We lost over 500,000 jobs in the month of December. We had downward revisions to job losses in the two prior months. The unemployment rate is now at 7.2%. I wanted to hit the core issue here as it relates to the financial crisis, because as you well know, it's been well discussed uh, it, among experts. The housing situation is really uh, at the core of the, the, the problem that is uh, being faced by consumers. Home prices are down 18% over a year ago. We've got very high housing inventories, as you can see in the top right panel. We're now um, looking at new home stocks that are equivalent to over 13 months of supply at current selling rates. So we've got excess stocks, both new and existing homes, well above the long-run averages, which you can see in the box there for new. Long-run average is roughly six months of supply at current selling rates. Existing is about seven. So we're well in excess of what would be considered normal stocks. That suggests quite clearly that we'll have continued downward pressure 
on home prices unless we begin to uh, really tackle this issue. On the bottom left panel, you can see how the current housing downturn compares to prior downturns in home building activity. The solid line is new home starts. And uh, this is an index. So what I've done in the, in the solid line is uh, show the peak in housing starts, which occurred in January of 2006. So I've indexed that to 100. And then essentially, this is tracking housing starts since that peak in January of 06. And the other lines showing uh, a, an average of the pre-1980 downturns as well as the 1981 downturn specifically, those are um, also indexed at their respective peaks. Bottom line, you can see that this home building activity decline, in fact, is still going down at a fairly rapid rate. And that is something that has to be addressed very quickly. On the bottom right, you can see the relationship between autos in home sales. And the point I want to make with this slide, you, you've probably seen some analysts out there saying, well, you know, housing and autos, autos really was in a boom, just like housing. And in point of fact, no. Uh, in, in this decade, we saw essentially a very low correlation between housing and autos. Unlike the historical data, where there was a very high correlation between housing and autos. As you can see, autos was fairly stable over the course of this decade. And in fact, vehicle sales peaked, believe it or not, in the year 2000. So this era of cheap credit that was generated by substantial financial innovation in this decade was not an advantage to the automotive sector. Our um, sales pace, as you can see, was relatively flat. So with that introduction, let me just comment a bit about some of the key principles behind a stimulus package. I think I've pretty much indicated to you, I, I do believe we need a sizable stimulus package. It should be enacted quickly, and it should be targeted to uh, stimulate demand and to stabilize the situation with respect to the housing sector. Um, what, what is really important is that we have to somehow break this negative feedback loop uh, between the financial situation and the economy. Um, at the core, as I mentioned, is the housing sector. That's uh, really fueled these uh, negative effects across the consumer terrain, including autos. And I also want to point out, so I, I do global uh, economics, and what we saw in the data was this uh, pronounced sinking up of the global economy as the financial crisis persisted and was particularly exacerbated by the Lehman failure. At that point, we saw consumer spending in all of the major markets begin to fall precipitously. And, you know, I just close out this slide by suggesting that the role of fiscal policy during these periods of extreme 
duress is to tr is to truncate those declines in confidence which feed on themselves both consumer and business stabilize the negative uh, cyclical momentum brought on by the credit shock and then act quickly and decisively as i've as i've mentioned so we need provisions that really pack a punch they should be direct and uh, also you know balance from the standpoint of both tax cuts and spending that have a clear exit strategy. I think the measures have to be directed at both consumers and businesses and focus on stabilizing the labor market, making sure that we're addressing uh, th uh, the existing jobs out there. We don't want people, ha folks having to lose their jobs at a rate that we have just seen in the last four to five months. We need to begin to to stabilize and keep people in their jobs and focus on also creating new jobs. And again, to reiterate, housing relief is critical and we have to uh, cut that feedback loop. So just quickly to recap, I know I'm hitting the high level points, but uh, very important to uh, indicate that we need massive fiscal stimulus. It is appropriate and critical at this uh, juncture, given the way that the credit shock has spread out to uh, affect most sectors of the economy, it needs to be designed to provide efficient relief. And by that, I mean relief that doesn't uh, really focus on lower productivity activities. Housing component is critical, and again, a balance from the standpoint of tax cuts and spending uh, provisions. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Jim? Thank you. Um, I don't have any Power, PowerPoint presentation, but uh, I, we're in a really fascinating time. Uh, I've been involved in uh, budget issues in Washington since the early 80s, and uh, what's going on right now is different in a, a number of important ways from what's happened in the past. Obviously, in the past, when uh, the economy appears to be slowing, when unemployment starts rising, there's a lot of concern about what can we do. Uh, Congress, the President, want to be seen as taking action to do something to stem this problem. But in all of the previous uh, occasions when this has happened and there's been a discussion about a fiscal stimulus package, um, there, there have been huge debates about whether it would be an appropriate thing to do. In part, this stemmed from the fact that <clears throat> in, on average in post-World War II recessions, the recessions have been relatively brief and uh, not, uh, you know, too terribly deep, although obviously the early 80s uh, turned out to be a, a, a pretty severe recession. But we've often been in a situation where it turned out afterwards that we were already on the rebound before you even knew you were in the recession. And so people have argued when things start slowing down, they, they say, well, you got to be careful because you don't want to jump out there and do something when, in fact, it's going to be too late and you're going to overheat the economy, you're going to do too much. Um, also, uh, general feeling that I think among the economics profession that uh, you'd better, it was better off to leave it to the Fed to take care of downturns, let the Fed deal with monetary policy and uh, get us out of this, that 
uh, fiscal relief not only is unnecessary, that it uh, takes too long to get it enacted, it usually isn't targeted right, and it's unnecessary, so why take the chance that you're going to do something that's costly and at the end of the day may not have been needed at all. Um, we're in a really different situation this time. I think it's striking the consensus among a, a wide range of economists about we are in a very serious situation. Uh, we now are in a recession for a year. I think that uh, most uh, forecasters agree that it's unlikely that we're going to really start growing before the sort of later in 2009. Some are more pessimistic that it would be even later, but uh, this is likely to be very extended. And I think there probably is a, a general agreement that even when we do start growing out of this, it's not going to be as at as rapid a pace as it has been in the past, partly because of credit problems, the housing situation, a number of other things. I think Congressional Budget Office forecast the other day basically said uh, they, they think in the latter half of 2009 we will start to rebound, but that the growth will be uh, a good deal slower than what we've typically seen in the early stages of recoveries in the past. So a general consensus, we're facing a, a downturn here that's likely to be quite, uh, quite deep uh, with a bigger GDP gap than we've seen uh, in general, uh, unemployment that could be uh, reaching close to the levels that we saw in the early 80s. And the other thing, of course, is that it feeling now is um, uh, there isn't a lot more that the Fed can do, that the Fed has lowered interest rates, that for a variety of reasons that uh, hasn't taken care of the problem and be hard to do more. So the first time in my career in Washington, there is a widespread, not unanimous, but very widespread uh, agreement that we do, in fact, need a very substantial fiscal stimulus package. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's uh, striking that uh, as many people as are agreeing are agreeing that something in the range of uh, $800 billion that it appears uh, uh, that President-elect Obama will, will propose is appropriate. Many people think it should be more. There certainly are people who say that's too much. But the fact that we're even talking uh, about maybe coalescing around something in the range of $800 billion over a couple of years is very striking in comparison with what we've seen in the past. Now, the problem, of course, is because of the history of fiscal stimulus uh, since World War II, we don't have experience with putting together a package anywhere near that size. This just hasn't been something that serious people have thought was a real possibility in the past, and so stimulus packages in the past have been much smaller. It was easier to say, here are the kinds of things in a package of that size that you can do that would be a good idea. Those aren't always the things that got included in the stimulus package, but I think analysts could at least say, here, you can do this much. We know this could get out, stimulate the economy, and, and do some good. But when you start talking about uh, $800 billion, it starts getting a little bit hard. So. Uh, or, or bigger than that. And I think there, there's some reason to believe that uh, people in the Obama uh, transition believe that we could usefully do more stimulus than around $775 billion, $800 billion. And then in addition to the political constraints that you might run into, they may be believing there are actually constraints about designing a package that's bigger than that that you could put into things that really would be useful. Um, focus a minute on what I think would be useful and what I think we need to keep our eye on 
as we move forward, and I agree completely with Ellen, what we need to do is stimulate demand. Uh, this, this is the case. There, there are also problems in the credit markets. You know, Treasury needs to do everything it can to stabilize credit markets, try to, try to make sure that companies that uh, do want to hold on to employees and invest in new equipment and plant and so on have access to money to do that. But the most important thing is that uh, companies have demand for their products so that they want to keep their employees, they want to make investments. And one of the things I think people need to keep their eye on is that while people are saying we need to focus on jobs in a stimulus package, that's absolutely right. That doesn't mean, though, that the policies have to be policies that are directly tied to jobs, like a jobs tax credit or something. Jobs, protecting jobs, creating jobs, the most important thing there is to create demand so that, in fact, there is demand for the products and services that, that people provide and therefore people will keep being employed. And some of the ways you can do that very effectively are, for instance, unemployment insurance. Well, some people would say, wait, these people are unemployed. How is it helping those people keep a job, you know, to give them unemployment? Well, it doesn't directly help them keep a job. They're already unemployed. But the money that these people spend will, in fact, protect other jobs because it will keep the level of demand up. Similarly, a, uh, uh, an increase in food stamp benefits, something we've proposed and I think is likely to be in the Obama plan, is another way of getting money there. And in particular, getting to money, money to people who will spend that money. If you're recently unemployed, if you're on food stamps, you're, you're struggling to meet your day-to-day -day needs. If we provide additional assistance to those people, that money is going to get spent, a very large portion of it as opposed to things that go to people with much higher incomes. Um, one huge thing, very effective, is state fiscal relief. Now, again, I think there are some people who say, well, what do you mean? You know, give money to the states? How does that help jobs? Well, uh, 44 states in the United States right now are facing budget deficits either this year or next year, fiscal years for states starting July. So this fiscal year, the one that starts next July, uh, there are six states that aren't facing it. It's not because those states are, you know, so well run and managed. It's because they depend very heavily on energy, uh, you know, Texas, Alaska, Montana, and so on, the states that have coal or uh, gas and oil and, and depend on that for revenues are doing okay, although six months from now it may be a different story even for them. But 44 other states facing budget deficits that over the next two and a half years total $350 billion or more. All but one of the states have a balanced budget requirement for their operating budgets. What that means is if the federal government doesn't provide some fiscal relief, doesn't provide money to these states, they are going to have to, over the next two and a half years, either cut their spending or raise their taxes by more than $350 billion. If they cut their spending, that means they're going to be laying off teachers, firemen, so on. That means reduction in jobs. That means those people won't have their incomes. They won't be spending. It means less services, too, for the people who depend on those services. But it also means fewer jobs. Uh, or if they raise taxes, that takes money out of the hands of people who would otherwise be spending it for consumption, buying cars, whatever. So one of the most effective things we can do is provide state fiscal relief. 
Uh, some people have argued, oh, if you give money to states, they're just going to start new programs. Look, they've got $350 billion budget hole. If we provide them $100 billion or $200 billion, they're still going to have to make cuts. They're still going to have to raise taxes. States are not going to be talking about starting or expanding programs. They're, even with a big infusion of fiscal relief, they're going to still be in, in very uh, bad shape. So we need to keep focused on the things that have been described both by uh, Mark Zandi at Economy.com and Congressional Budget Office as having big bang for the buck. And that means money that goes out that gets spent, that creates demand, which then creates jobs, and not get caught up in let's design some new tax cut for businesses, which and some businesses may need it. You may have a company now, given the credit situation, that are credit constrained. But in general, if you give a, a tax credit to businesses, uh, the business that doesn't see a demand for its products not going to spend that money. They're going to put it aside. Uh, they're going to give, uh, you know, bigger benefits or bigger dividends or uh, so on, which would go to higher income people that are likely to, to save it. So instead of focusing, and, and there's some attempt to talk about, well, cr let's create a tax credit that's tied to creating new jobs. That, in theory, that's a good idea, but designing one that actually is tied to, you know, actually is effective in identifying where new jobs are created is very difficult. So we need to keep our eye on let's increase demand. Uh, additional infrastructure spending to the extent it can get out the door in the next couple of years, that can be very useful. I've, I've been in the past very skeptical about infrastructure because of the length of time it takes uh, to get out the door. But in this case, we're facing a, you know, long downturn and a slow recovery. So money going out the door 18 months, two years from now could be very useful. So those sorts of things that get out there create demand and will protect jobs and that can have some long-term benefit, like some of the uh, infrastructure, and help people who are struggling the most. If we can combine those things, that's really desirable at this point. Okay, Jim. Um, I'm going to just do a, a, a fairly brief presentation because uh, Ellen has to take a conference call with the New York Fed at uh, 11 o'clock, and so I want to get some uh, discussion before she has to leave us, and so I'm just going to go through very quickly. Um, at, back when the Center for American Progress was uh, a new uh, uh, nascent organization, we had to rent hotel rooms uh, in order to have uh, conferences like this because we didn't have a conference room. And uh, w one of the first ones we did was at the Mayflower, and, and we had uh, Paul Krugman, uh, who, who said, uh, this is not your father's business cycle. I hate to use a General Motors uh, paraphrase. Uh, this is not your father's business cycle. Uh, and, th and that was in 2004. I think that it was apparent at that, at that time that we had a, a very different economy in which the issue was not uh, how to improve on the supply side, but whether or not we could sustain demand. Uh, and that problem, which uh, I'm going the wrong way on my slides. down I'll just I'm just gonna skip over that the, we had we had a big demand problem uh, uh, and I think it was driven primarily by uh, as a result of the fact that uh, while we had significant wage uh, we had significant productivity gains 
uh, we had uh, 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 almost no gain in wages. In other words, when workers' productivity uh, was increased, And this, you can see what happened with uh, worker productivity uh, and wages from the end of World War II up until the mid-70s. Uh, uh, the uh, graph on your left shows it's almost uh, e exact parallel between uh, uh, the two. Uh, and that's what that meant was that businesses and workers were basically splitting uh, the benefits of worker productivity. And that's very important because if you have greater productivity, you have more product, you have, uh, you have more things to buy, and if your workers don't have more money to spend on it, you're going to have excess inventories and then you're going to have to start laying off. So to keep the economy in balance, you need that balance. This is what's happened since 2000. We've had a 20% growth in productivity over that period and uh, wages have grown by less than 1%, and employment has not kept pace with the growth in population, so family incomes are actually down. Now, the way we tried to solve that uh, was to simply extend credit so that workers, even though they didn't have more money, had, uh, had uh, uh, the ability to spend more. And the eventual result of that was you just dug the hole deeper, and when, when it came to, to payday, it was, it was a pretty grim day. And that's where we are. Uh, now, people who have looked at... Uh, the shift from borrowing and spending to saving and, and, uh, and the uh, contraction that's taking place in the economy, believe that between individuals and businesses that, that we're going to be spending uh, somewhere between 9 and 10 percent less by the end of this year than we were spending last year. Uh, and that's a, that's a huge contraction. That's about $1.5 trillion less in spending in the economy. And the problem that is created if somebody does not step in and, and, and deal with that is, is that uh, you have a downward spiral. People buy less because they're, they're worried about uh, the future of the economy. That means that, that uh, businesses sell less and have to start laying off workers. Lay, the, the notices of layoffs and the type of reports that we had this morning mean that people become even more conservative about it. You have more and more financial institutions that, that uh, get into trouble and are unable to uh, loan money or are afraid to loan money to businesses. So you, you just have a, a, a dramatic uh, downward spiral. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that uh, happened in this country uh, every so often prior to World War II and, and most notably uh, in the 1930s. Uh, but it is not something that's happened uh, uh, since World War II. All of, we've had 11 recessions since World War II, and really all of those recessions have been caused by uh, the Federal Reserve deciding that the economy was uh, uh, becoming overheated or that uh, inflation was going to uh, uh, become a problem, and so they deliberately slowed the economy. Now we have a situ situation in which the Fed has done everything that can be done to try to stimulate growth, and we still have a downward spiral. And that means that, uh, that fiscal policy or fiscal stimulus is the only uh, choice that we really have. Uh, 
I think that it's very difficult to uh, put together a package like this, much, much more difficult than most people believe, uh, because there are, there are really uh, constraints on how much the government can spend, uh, and there are uh, uh, a lot of problems with trying to do stimulus on the tax side. By and large, it is, uh, it is better to do as much as you possibly can on the spending side because that tends to recirculate inside our own economy uh, uh, more than, than tax cuts do. Uh, most economists now say that you get about 50 percent more stimulus out of, out of government spending than you do out of, uh, uh, out of, the out of tax cuts. Uh, so if you want to, if you want to fill that 1.5 trillion dollar gap, um, you can you can increase the deficit less by doing it through spending than you will if you have to do it through tax cuts. Uh, unfortunately, the federal government uh, uh, really can't spend the kind of money that it would take. I think that in order to close that 1.5 trillion dollar gap. Uh, you probably can get about uh, $400 billion uh, to come back into the economy by having an effective plan. In other words, it, it, you don't have to have that kind of a drop if you have a, uh, uh, a government plan that, that is going to pump uh, uh, close to a trillion dollars in it, and it's credible. And then businesses and individuals will start spending and, and the size of the crisis will be diminished just just by the fact that you have the plan. Uh, if if you do if you did it all with uh, uh, with tax cuts, you would probably need close to uh, a trillion dollars in tax cuts. If you do it uh, largely on spending, you probably can cut your annual outlay requirement to about six hundred and fifty billion dollars. Uh, that 650 does not compare with what the president's talking about because he's talking about a two-year plan, and I'm only talking about what what you what you would need in uh, in one year. Of that of that 650 uh, billion, uh, probably about 400 to 450 billion would be on the spending side, um, and I think it's it will be a real challenge to see whether or not the federal government can find ways to spend money that uh, that quickly. Uh, and on things that are useful. One of the biggest uh, opportunities for that is, is to restore state and local budgets uh, because if you can prevent uh, policemen and teachers and, and uh, city administrators from being laid off, uh, you've, you've restored part of the workforce uh, and you've, you've found a way to keep uh, the economy running. Uh, there are a lot of things that we would like to make investments in, but some of those are quite difficult. Uh, uh, a good deal of discussion about highways. Um, some people say that uh, we have a lot of uh, shovel-ready highways uh, uh, that we can and bridges that we can start working on. CBO uh, believes that about 32 percent of that would be spent in the first year of the money that we put into highways. Uh, and probably about 40 percent in the second year, but the substantial amount would still not be spent after, after two years. Uh, and so the money that you need to have flowing really in the months ahead, uh, much of it won't flow in for a year or two from now. Uh, and there are many areas where, where it is much more difficult uh, uh, than it is with highways to get, 
to get money flowing. Uh, and particularly some of these innovative new ideas, uh, alternative energy, uh, uh, those types of things, the, the planning and the contracting uh, uh, to uh, move that type of money uh, can take years before we can really start to see uh, funds flowing into the economy. So I'm going to end with that and uh, uh, open it to questions so we get a little more chance to have a discussion with Alan. Thank you. Right up here. Do you agree with Scott's point about the mixture of spending and tax cuts that he, he just mentioned? Thanks. I hope everyone heard the question, mixed mixture. I think that, um, you know, Scott makes some very good points about the efficiency of every dollar that uh, can multiply through on the spending versus the tax side. And there are several empirical studies that uh, do support that there's much more efficiency from the standpoint of multiplier effects for that dollar of spending, if it's done properly. And don't forget that parenthetical. And I think Scott was also emphasizing that. It depends on what dollar of spending you're talking about. And so, you know, for example, we, we all, I think, agree on the, the issue that stimulating demand is really important. And, you know, there's uh, discussion around, you know, potential uh, scrappage programs for vehicles is one example where there is uh, a multiplier effect that's quite efficient and could achieve some additional objectives vis-a-vis -vis reducing our dependence on oil if we can replace those vehicles on the road with higher fuel-efficient vehicles. So there are some spending programs, I think, that are more productive and more efficient than tax cuts, but I don't want to leave you with the impression that tax cuts, you know, if properly structured, uh, you know, would be kind of subordinated to any given spending program. I think that tax cuts, especially permanent tax cuts, do go directly to assist the consumer to make their choices about how to shore up their balance sheet and how to undertake their own activity, uh, whether it's to um, increase their saving, to reduce their debt burden, or to simply just buy the goods and services that they need in a very stressed labor market environment. So I hope that answers your question. And um, if so, what qualifications should that person have and what should the scope of uh, that person's authority be? Oh gosh, I, you know, that's a, <laughs> that's really outside the scope of the panel today. Uh, I'm not going to comment directly on whether or not we need a car czar or we don't need a car czar. We've got some policy experts here in the, the audience that you might want to talk to after from, uh, from our company. But, you know, that's sort of aside from, I think, what we wanted to talk about today in terms of fiscal stimulus. And there's, there's, lo there's lots of information circulating out there, pros and cons on that issue. I don't think I have any value to add by commenting directly on that. Martin Frost up here. Uh, Scott, two unrelated questions. 
Um, first, isn't the new administration's desire for bipartisanship uh, going to come in direct conflict with the, your, your theory as to uh, the distribution between tax cuts and spending? That's, that's the first question. And I, I think there is a, there's something to be gained by uh, getting bipartisan support for this uh, stimulus package, but uh, that would seem to uh, tilt it more on the, on the tax side than you would like. And second, on the uh, question of uh, state fiscal relief, isn't a lot of that money going to go into uh, assisting states with their deficits on Medicaid rather than going into preserving jobs for teachers and, uh, uh, and policemen and firemen? Um, well, first of all, I, I don't think there's any question that we have to uh, have both taxes and spending. Um, and uh, I, I think everybody is sort of in agreement on that. Uh, there will be disagreement about how much. Clearly, there is a, a, a difference uh, uh, between a lot of us, and, and I know Jim shares my view on this, that uh, uh, many of the tax cuts that you can put into businesses uh, are there. There is only one type of business that I know of right now that is really interested in expanding capacity, and that's pawn shops, because there's uh, there there are very few businesses that see that they're going to have uh, uh, the market for greater capacity. So before we start worrying about uh, investments and expanding our industrial base, we need to restore demand, and that means we need to pump it right to, into the individuals. And and I. I think there is, you know, there is conflict there uh, uh, between what what uh, many of us would like to see and what uh, the administration may have to do in order to get uh, enough Republican support to uh, to move it. Uh, w with respect to uh, the Medicaid shortfall and those issues, I mean, th this is fungible money. The uh, the states have to pay the Medicaid bills, and if they have to start laying off. Uh, people at universities and laying off uh, uh, state highway patrol and all of that, uh, then then that is just another part of the downward spiral. Uh, the everybody is, uh, is, is likes to talk about how pleased they are that states have uh, a requirement that they always have a balanced budget. But in a situation like this, it means that they are part of the problem. They become a procyclical uh, addition to uh, uh, the the problems facing the economy. And the more the economy in the state uh, worsens, the more the state contributes to, uh, to, to making that economy even worse by its own budget contraction and layoffs and so forth. So, so we need to break that cycle, and the only way we can do that is to put money into the hands of states. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, no, you're exactly right about the fungibility, that uh, the changing the FMAP matching rate for Medicaid is a fairly easy and efficient way to increase aid to uh, to states. But when you provide that money for Medicaid, that means they don't then have to cut elsewhere to meet the Medicaid demand. So it really does make a difference in their overall operating budget. <coughs> Dana Chasen, uh, OMB Watch. A question for any member of the panel. Uh, to this point in the uh, debate um, in Congress regarding the stimulus package, uh, insofar as we really know um, the scope of it, the size of it, the composition of it, et cetera, uh, to what extent are you in encouraged or discouraged about the intellectual discipline 
um, as reflected in the debate thus far, whether it's comments of the Senate Finance Committee Chair or the House Ways and Means Chair, uh, how would you evaluate the uh, intellectual discipline vis-a-vis -vis a focus on bang for the buck, stimulative, truly stimulative elements, whether on the spending or on the tax side? Uh, and what might be a, a, a signal issue that uh, should serve as a lens for us to look through to evaluate the stimulative uh, nature um, of, uh, of the bill as it evolves? I'll, I'll take the first cut at it. The first thing I'd want to say is that what I know, from what I know of what the Obama team is putting together and, and thinking about, I'm very impressed with what they're doing. I think they are thinking about the right issues very carefully, both of how do we get the demand out there, what's feasible, you know, how do we put this, this together. So I think they're doing a job. Doesn't mean at the end of the day I'll agree with everything they do or the mix, exact mixture of taxes and spending, but I think they are approaching this in a very sensible way. I think in, in the Congress, I think in general, most of the comments are on the right track about what do we do to protect jobs, you know, how do we do it, let's uh, make sure we stimulate the economy now, and so on. I, I think what you need to look at, what I will worry about is as it goes through Congress, you'll start getting ideas for things, particularly tax cuts or for subsidies. I imagine subsidies on the spending side that are aimed at stimulating certain sectors of the economy or particular companies or something that sound like, oh, this, you know, this is a way to stimulate jobs. I hope that doesn't happen. I hope you keep the focus on generating increased aggregate demand, getting money in the hands of consumers, states, and so on to, to make sure that gets spent. And I, I worry, I think the question that Martin Frost had about when it goes through Congress, the tax side, I, I worry about that because there certainly are people in Congress, the, the, you know, the history of the Republicans on the Senate Finance Committee is they think tax cuts really are the answer to practically everything, and I'm afraid we will get pushes for tax cuts that won't, in fact, help stimulate the economy nearly as much as the alternatives. I, I think that the, the challenge that this situation places in terms of policy development is one of the greatest in, in my lifetime. And I, I think it's, it's somewhat akin to the planning that had to go into uh, the fighting of World War II in, in some ways. I mean, it's just, it's just so massive. There are so many, I, I don't think you can, you can't, uh, you, you can't do this without examining the capacity of almost every federal program. And, and looking at whether there are things that you could do there that would provide uh, a boost uh, uh, that, you could, that you could accelerate procurement so that you could take care of some issues now that will allow you to have a smaller uh, deficit in the future. Um, I think the, uh, the tax challenges in terms of understanding the, the impact on, on an economy that's changing this, this rapidly are, are, are tremendous. And one thing you have to remember is that there, there are several thousand people in the federal government who do budgeting, and, and none of those can be tasked at this point by the incoming administration that has to make these decisions. I mean, they're in a one 
relatively small building over on Sixth Street, uh, trying to put this together with you know with a with a very limited uh, number of people, and they won't have access to all of the career people at OMB, all of the people in the agency departmental budget offices uh, uh, for a couple weeks, uh, and and so um, uh, a lot. It's you know, it's unfortunate that we're we're in this transitional period when we really need the kind of you know much more rigorous policy analysis that, that, than we uh, are able to provide. Ellen, do you have? Just uh, a couple of comments. I, I thought your question was absolutely spot on. You need to have a very good, talented approach that is fact-based. It's driven on some key economic policy prescriptions. I think, you know, it, being a business economist, there's a lot in economics that can be applied very rigorously to the task at hand. I agree with Scott. It's a it's an immense project. And I go thinking back to you know the the world the uh, the Second World War. You know when Ford's plants were used for different purposes. I mean we're talking about some very you know important uh, efforts that have to be made. Um, are there going to be mistakes? <coughs> you know there will be mistakes, but there's always the ability to make some mid-course corrections. We really need to, to stimulate uh, all sectors of the economy at this point to put a bottom on this situation, to find the trough and to stabilize. So yes, I, I think you're absolutely right, but let's do it with the intellect and the talent and the data and the facts that we can bring to bear. the uh, comment that you think that housing is uh, a, a key concern. I see nothing in the stimulus plan being proposed by the Obama <coughs> administration which addresses that need to stop the downward cycle on housing prices. What would you recommend? Uh, thank, thank you for that question. I, I don't have all of the details. I'm not privy to any of the, you know, uh, specifics around uh, what is being planned. So I, I'm not sure whether or not there's something. You, you seem to maybe know a little bit more than I do. Maybe Scott has a little more detail around the housing provisions. But w we need to design some policies that begin to mitigate the downdraft on foreclosures. Because what that does in economic terms is generate this so-called negative externality. You've got the neighbor being affected in the, in the, in the development because there's a few you know, homes, unfortunately, that are going through the foreclosure process. And so then their home is dragged into the, into the vortex. So there are policies that can directly, you know, address that, uh, that so-called negative externality. Scott, do you want to? Yeah, I would. Uh, uh, there, there's a story in the paper this morning that Tim Geithner is reviewing this whole uh, TARP uh, uh, plan and, and how that money is used. And I, I think that is clearly going to be directed much more uh, closely at the housing sector. Uh, there's also a, a proposal uh, that is being kicked around in the Treasury uh, and, and on Capitol Hill that would uh, 
force uh, mortgage rates downward to conform right now uh, and even though they've come down quite a bit relative to what a 10-year treasury note sells for yields uh, which is between two and two and a half percent there's there's a tremendous spread between uh, the tr uh, and uh, un unprecedented is about 250 basis points difference between a treasury note and a mortgage if you could bring that down uh, uh, to the more normal area of about 150 that would have a a hugely positive effect on the, on the mortgage crisis. Um, one proposal that I've put forward is is that the uh, that we use tax cuts and I'll just show you I'm not against uh, tax cuts or don't think think that there are some business tax cuts that would be useful. I think that the, that it would be very helpful for the federal government uh, to to give a tax break to companies that hold mortgages. If they write those mortgages down to the level that uh, that the the homeowner uh, can continue to afford to pay, um, I don't think the federal government ought to take the whole hit on it. But I think that they should share in the loss uh, and encourage the loss, uh, encourage companies to recognize that they have mortgages that are not uh, uh, going to work out, and it's it's much better to come to terms with the homeowner than it is to allow that for foreclosure. Uh, to put more uh, property on the market and and further weight down the price of, of homes. Up here. Uh, the, the Obama plan appears to be on change.com and it shows about $25 billion for highways, schools, and energy. Pretty unspecified as to schools and the energy part. And that appears to be the only reference to infrastructure, the plan. Um, is that enough? I, I think there's a big question as to, and I don't know that anybody has an answer to this. Right now we spend about $40 billion a year in surface transportation. Now, the government doesn't really do that. They, they uh, give it to the states, and the states sign contracts with private businesses that build these roads. So the question is, how many of those businesses, those those uh, uh, you know heavy building contractors, have uh, uh, equipment that they're not using right now, and that, that you know they're they're probably not using it to 100 percent of capacity, but they're using it a lot. They and they don't keep a lot around that they're not using. So how how much can you uh, expand that 40 billion? By I think you could easily expand it by 10 percent. You could probably expand it by 20 percent. You start to get to 30, 40 percent, and you really, what what you're going to be doing is you're going to be paying a lot more money to contractors to do the same amount of work because you don't have the capacity out there to do it. And I, th I think we need to go through each of these areas and look what not <coughs> just what the, the capability of the federal government to get the money out, but what is what is the capability of the private sector to to spend money in these areas, and that's just. I mean, I think that gives you some sense of how complicated this exercise is. I think $25 billion may be on the high side in terms of how much we could expand those particular things. But, I, you know, the, it, you'd have to see more uh, uh, of the proposal and work it out program by program, uh, area by area over here. I'm sorry. Did no, no, that's fine. Yeah, um, I was just wondering, looking forward a few years, um, I, I was, my question's about spending restraint. I mean, there's been 
very little interested in Congress in that in, in recent years, uh, and now we're really kind of opening the floodgates. And will that make any attempt to impose spending restraint, you know, down the road worse? I mean, yes, right now we need to you know find the the bottom in this economy and so forth. But going forward, we've got you know entitlements, baby boomers, and I also want wondered uh, related to that, will uh, at some point could we be running uh, deficits large enough that you know, we run into the trouble where will people continue buying bonds to, to, to finance it? So uh, that's basically uh, my question. A couple of couple of things. First of all, absolutely right. We're on a an unsustainable long term basis. The the center, our our main big interest at the center, the reason we exist, is uh, concerned about programs for low and moderate income people. But we also do a lot of work on fiscal responsibility, in part because we believe firmly that if we don't get the long-term deficits under control, at the end of the day, it's going to be programs that we care about that are likely to be savaged. So we just put out a revised uh, report revision of estimates we did a year and a half ago in December that confirmed, went along with what Congressional Budget Office, Government Accountability Office, everybody serious who's looked at it says, which is we're on an unsustainable long-term path. The main reason for being on that is uh, in part demographics, return of the baby boom, but in fact that's relatively small. The overwhelming problem we face in the long term over the next 40 years is the rising per person cost of health care. And it's not just rising per person cost of providing Medicare and Medicaid because those costs over the last 30 years have risen at about the same rate as throughout the whole healthcare system. So it's a system-wide problem, and we absolutely have to deal with that. Now, at the same time, we should, of course, this is not to say that there aren't other areas in the budget that we should, you know, make changes. We, we're not big fans of farm subsidy programs. There are other things we could cut. But in fact, there is not a general entitlement problem. Uh, entitlements other than Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid are growing less rapidly than the economy. So they're actually a shrinking share of the spending relative to the size of the economy. And in general, domestic spending is not. Now, in recent years, what we have seen is big increase in domestic, I mean, in discretionary spending for security purposes. Defense, partly the war in Iraq, obviously, but outside of money for the war in Iraq, big increase in defense spending and for homeland security and for international. For domestic discretionary spending, it has actually, over the last uh, uh, eight years, declined relative to the size of uh, the economy. Actually, I think in real terms, been about constant. So, so just first of all, it's we haven't had a huge increase in spending in recent years, except basically on the defense side and the continued growth of Medicare and Medicaid. And in the long run, the real threat is healthcare costs and inadequate revenues. I, I think this is an important question. I'd like to uh, answer it in a, in, a, in a different way. I agree with everything that, uh, that Jim just said. Um, and, and in particular, the health thing is it's a big problem for government because government is a major payer of health costs. Uh, but it's just as big for Ford Motor Company and, uh, and the private sector. In fact, I don't think there's a a more pressing issue in terms of long-term health of the American automobile industry than the out-of-control uh, cost of health care in the United States. But it is 
if, if you want to have uh, uh, a budget that is uh, uh, reasonably imbalanced and under control, it is very important that you get uh, through this recession with as little difficulty or as little downside as possible so that you can get the incomes rising and revenues rising uh, in order to, uh, to do that. I think I go back. I don't know this clicker is my bane again. Uh, at the end of World War II, I mean, we, we went from uh, a, a debt, public debt that was equal to um, about 40% of GDP uh, at, at the beginning of World War II to 110% of GDP uh, by the end of, uh, of World War II. And even though we were not in balance, uh, uh, we didn't have a balanced budget or a surplus, we had deficits that were smaller than the growth of the economy. And by the 1970s, we cut that down to 25% of GDP. Um, in the 80s, it went up because we tried to have a big defense buildup uh, at the same time we had big tax cuts. Um, and it came back down uh, in the 90s. Uh, and right now, you can see the United States is toward the end. We're at th we were uh, in 07 at 37% of GDP. Now, we're in much better shape than, than uh, most other industrial countries. Uh, and uh, Japan, which is covered up by the, uh, by the uh, computer, thing is is 180 uh, percent but uh, countries like Germany and and uh, uh, Western Europe uh, most of Western Europe is is around 60 percent so we have a lot of room to 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 go before we start uh, getting into trouble with our debt and we ought to be able to turn this uh, economy around and be and begin shrinking the debt as a percentage of GDP uh, by the uh, you know, well before we get uh, into this, too far into this recession, we, we, we uh, well before we get to 60% of GDP, which is kind of the break line. That's the target for Maastricht uh, and the European Union is they want to keep debt at, at, at less than 60%. I think the importance of fiscal restraint is, is clear from the present situation. Because of the progress we made in the late 90s and the early part of this decade, uh, in reducing debt. Uh, we have a lot more flexibility uh, to deal with this recession than, than, than we would have otherwise. And you always want to be in that situation. So you want to, in good times, you want to be paying down your debt and, and, uh, and strengthening your fiscal condition so that lenders will, uh, will regard treasuries as the gold currency. If, if I could, one, one more thing on this, which is, um, we tried to make clear in, our, in this paper we put out, we talked about the importance of beginning to deal with the long-term problem. Absolutely have to do it. We also tried to point out that doesn't mean we shouldn't take whatever steps are necessary now to make sure the economy is stabilized and stimulated, get things going. And one of the things we did was a calculation in there, and I think people may be a little surprised at this. One of the ways you can measure the long-term problem is so-called fiscal gap where you say, how much would you have to in cut spending or increase revenues on average over the next, in our cases, 42 years relative to the size of the economy over that time? When we measured it, <clears throat> we calculated about 4.2% is the fiscal gap. We then, just for purpose of understanding what the current downturn means, we took out the amount that we were adding 
to what CBO had projected the economy looked like last September and what it now looked like was happening because of the slowdown, the loss in revenues, and also uh, money for stimulus. We didn't put in quite as much as now is apparent we like, likely should have. But when we did it, it only made about 4% difference in that long run, went from would have been 4% of GDP fiscal gap if we didn't have this current downturn and stimulus spending. Uh, so difference between 4% or 4.2% over that 42 years. And so it's important to realize that while we're talking about massive deficits and debt this year, next year, a couple of years, those do not add hugely to the long-term problem. And that's, in a way, that's bad because that means the long-term problem was so bad to start with that these really big deficits right now don't make as much difference. But the main reason is that they're temporary, that it's this and it's upfront. And when you're talking about over 42 years, uh, it's the long-term increasing cost of health care and so on that is really driving the problem. In the back, standing up. Jay Bonstingle, Columbia, Maryland. Uh, how do we get out of this mess without uh, incurring uh, a, a great deal of, uh, of untoward or unuseful foreign investment? Uh, how do we get out of this without the Chinese owning us? Well, I think uh, the Chinese have uh, about $650 billion in U.S. Treasuries that they own right now, uh, which is about 6% of the total. Um, that is basically driven by, uh, by Chinese exports and, and the balance of trade with the United States rather than uh, our fiscal situation. I think what you're going to see is, is that China is going to uh, decline as a, as a bondholder uh, simply because the U.S. economy is going to be so weak that we're not going to be buying uh, exports from China. And I, and I think the Chinese, in order to, to uh, survive politically, are uh, actually starting to do what we've been trying to encourage them to do for a decade, and that is to, to uh, base their growth more on their internal expansion uh, rather than as an export uh, uh, growth. So I think that will, that will uh, move move us somewhat in the right direction. Um, so I, I'm less worried about that. I, I think that the point, the key thing is we make sure that we do what's necessary to prime the pump to get the economy going, and I'm much worried, less worried about how we get the money to do that than the fear that we don't do enough and we go through a really prolonged slump and we've got real problems. Hi, I'm all for an economic stimulus. My husband's been out of work for over a year, and I'm only partially um, employed. But I'm wondering what we can do that's more productive than just giving people money to buy new cars. I can tell you, if you give me money, I'm not going out and buying a new car. The money's going towards education to retrain my husband out of network news into something that has a future, um, and into childcare, um, so people can actually get back to work. Um, when those jobs open up. But I don't see anything in any of these packages that address child care or education. I can't uh, speak to the child care. I do know um, that I mean, there, is a, there is a lot of education 
that is in the package that's being worked on on the Hill right now. Um, one of the one of the proposals that I'm concerned about is that, that it's too much money, uh, simply because I'm not sure that uh, that we have the capacity to do it. But the, there is a uh, a proposal f that from the administration or the incoming administration that we uh, that we increase uh, the work incentive we have program uh, by about 400 percent above its current level. I really wonder whether the mayors and uh, governors have places that they can go that they can that they can incre uh, provide that much increased training if they do i think it's terrific that we spend it that way uh, there is also uh, a, a part of the package that is going to be directed at uh, 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 repairing schools uh, uh, and and we've got a lot of schools that are have real serious infrastructure problems and Fortunately, a lot of those don't take uh, heavy equipment or um, uh, uh, long lead times to, to fix. Uh, there's also some things we can do in terms of uh, student assistance, uh, uh, Pell Grants, so forth, so that people that can't get jobs maybe can improve their work skills so when the economy comes back, they'll be employed at a higher level. Uh, I think, you know, particularly in the long run, I fully support more money for child care, a whole variety of things, and if, if some of that can get into the plan, that's all to the good. But in general, it does make a huge difference for all sorts of things if we get money in the hands of people. If we get hands in the money of a state or we get hands in the money of people, they're going to spend it. Some of the ones who are constrained, they say if, if we give tax breaks to high-income people, the money's going to get saved for a large extent. But if we get money in the hands of people who are struggling to meet day-to-day -day needs, they're going to spend it for child care. States will spend it to maintain child care that they're providing and so on. So, so in fact, in the short run, we just want to get the money there, and a lot of it will go into things that we need. In the long run, we need to think about what kind of uh, assistance, federal government assistance, do we need for child care. Hi, Scott and, uh, and Jim. I'm Anita Estelle. I have a, a combined question, if you don't mind. In ter uh, uh, Martin Frost raised a question about the, the money going to the states, and you responded talking about the police and the teachers. But we've talked a lot about Main Street and the side streets, and that's really the jurisdiction of the mayors. And I know there's a piece of the stimulus that's targeting CDBG money. And I, and I guess, you know, the metro economies have to be involved with the overall uh, priming of the pump and the long-term strategy. So I'd like to hear a little bit more how you plan to engage the money, uh, engage the mayors, and ensure that the funds get directly to the mayors without being filtered out. Because the local roads and water systems are, as, are in as much decay as the highways. Uh, that's one question. Related to the metro economies, there's this notion of changing demographics. Uh, and changing demographics being that 50% uh, of our nation will be comprised of Latina and African American and other ethnic groups by the year 2040, just right around the corner. Now, those communities also suffer disproportionately within the educational and employment realm. And so I'm very curious as to how the stimulus will be targeted in these emerging domestic markets to really encourage those communities which have been left behind and who are now being pulled 
into this category of global competitiveness in a hurry, how we can prime that pump by engaging the minority serving institutions and other institutions that are serving them more directly uh, to make sure that we're uh, ultimately most successful. Start with the, the latter first, not so much the, the serving community, but it's one of the reasons we strongly support as part of a stimulus significant increase in um, extending unemployment insurance, but also modernizing unemployment insurance so that more states make sure that people who have been working on a regular basis part-time, but because they have children to look after or whatever, uh, are only looking for part-time job. In more than 30 states right now, they're not eligible for unemployment insurance. We think they should be. And that particularly, I think, helps the minority communities because you have a lot of, of people who, first of all, they get hit by unemployment. It's, it's, it's people, lower wage jobs often that really suffer. And also in many cases you have particularly women with children who are working part-time. So doing what we can to make the unemployment insurance system work I think helps. Food stamps, again, you know, many people getting benefits, getting benefits out there. And it doesn't answer your question about how to serve long-term needs, but at least it gets some money into uh, low-income minority communities that are particularly hard hit in a, in a downturn. The second on the, the states and as far as getting money to local, um, I don't know nearly as much about this as people at the center who work. We have a separate state and local uh, policy issue. And it's something they're very concerned about, about whether local communities do it. But I know there's a huge problem in trying to design, particularly in a relatively short time, a federal program that can get money to local communities in a systematic and fair way because there's such a difference from state to state about what is local communities. You know, is it counties, is it cities, is it townships, and different levels of responsibility, you know, that different uh, levels of government have responsibility for different things in different states. and. I can't say it's impossible, but I know this is a real challenge whenever the issue comes up about getting money is, is there a way to design it? And I know it's been hard to come up with. So uh, it's something that I think you're absolutely right to be concerned about. Will the money that does go to states get to where it's most needed? But it's, it's difficult to figure out how to design a federal program that does that, particularly when you're doing it in the context of a stimulus bill and you don't have years to try to design it. Uh, yeah, uh, much has been made in the press and elsewhere about uh, healthcare information technology as part of the stimulus package. Do you all comment on what kind of an effect you think that might have? I, I don't know. I mean, I think it, it has, there's potential if, in fact, there are people out there right now who are not, you know, fully employed and you can put money into that and it gets them employed then you've helped to stimulate the economy, and I do believe there are long-term benefits from increased information, I mean, healthcare technology. On the other hand, if all you're doing is shifting people from doing one kind of work in technology to another, you get the long-term benefit, presumably still, but you wouldn't get the stimulus. I don't know enough about that area to know which is the case. I, uh, so there are people who think that, in fact, this will help stimulate, and they may be right. I don't know. Paul? Yeah, I heard Senator 
McConnell on the radio this morning stating the obvious, which is that what unites Republicans from Maine to California is tax relief. Uh, I would hope that one of the things that unites progressives is commitment to a progressive income tax. And we've seen an erosion of that over the recent decades. How much should restoration of a progressive income tax be a part of this debate? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I don't think as a part of this debate we're going to get into the long-term tax you know, plan. On the other hand, it's certainly progressive should be part of this debate to the extent that there are taxes in here. So, for instance, uh, Obama's plan almost certainly is going to include on a temporary basis some version of his making work pay uh, proposal. And in that, it is a refundable credit. So at least that is one where, while he's, it's hard to know exactly how, how high up the income scale it will go, maybe up to 200000 which is not low income, at least it is one that is refundable for people who have uh, wages, and the question is how much and so on. So, and, and that's important for two reasons. One, just generally I think tax could, should be progressive, but second, when you want to stimulate the economy, you definitely want a progressive tax cut because it's the people that are more cash constrained, lower incomes, that are going to spend the money instead of saving, and that gives you more stimulus. So certainly to, to that extent, uh, debate about progressivity of taxes should be part of this debate. I agree. Hit the back. What's the answer to people who say, uh, you know, this, this strategy was tried in Japan, and while maybe they, they stopped the economy from free fall, all they got was like, you know, 10 years of basically no growth, uh, th that uh, you don't really, you really need to somehow to kick the private sector into, uh, in, if you really want to have a full-throated recovery. Well, I, you know, I think there's... There are some parallels between what's happened in the United States and Japan. Uh, we, uh, we allowed our housing sector to become grossly overvalued, uh, but not in any way close to uh, what happened in Japan. I mean, we're talking about maybe uh, a 50 percent overvaluation of, of housing in the United States or maybe even 100 percent. They were, they were uh, radically overvalued uh, uh, two or three times that high. So it took a very long time to recover from that, and, and it, was, it was a problem they had with their uh, uh, almost every asset in Japan was, was uh, grossly overvalued. Uh, I would say the other answer to that question is what would have happened to Japan had they not, had they not uh, used all the uh, fiscal and monetary stimulation that they did. Uh, I, think, I think that they could have gone through much of what we went through uh, in the 1930s. I mean, we, we, we got to 25% uh, uh, unemployment uh, uh, by 1932, and we didn't get it down until uh, 1940, really, to, to where, where uh, uh, it, was, it was above 20% for four or five years. Uh, I don't think any... There's no need for any modern economy to go through that anymore, and and uh, I think people that are saying, well, we shouldn't do this, uh, simply haven't looked at the at the uh, massive human suffering that that occurred in the in the 1930s as a result of our not 
pursuing greater stimulus. I'm certainly no expert on the Japanese experience, but what I had read about it, and I think it makes sense, is that Japan did do big stimulus, but they were un they tried for a long time to deny that they had the fundamental problem that Scott talked about of the overvaluation of assets and a banking system that just was not at all efficient. And, you know, to some extent, the fact that we're undergoing what we're doing now, where we have seen the prices in housing go down, we've seen this incredible shakeup in the financial system, is an indication that at least, you know, there's been a recognition here that there was a problem. And we haven't tried to prop up housing prices at the levels that they were at a year ago. We haven't uh, tried to tell banks, oh, just keep on, you know, doing what you're doing. now. We hadn't necessarily dealt with it the best possible way, but we have, in fact, let those things sort of, uh, you know, sort themselves out in a way that I think gives you the hope that once we get the economy going again, we can sustain the growth in a way that Japan for, you know, a decade wasn't able to do because they didn't recognize, sort of bite the bullet and uh, deal with the problem early on, and they kept trying to just muddle their way through. and. So I, I, I think there's there's hope that we can have a much better situation, a much better outcome here than they had. Okay, one more question, or are we done? Okay, thank you very much. <laughs>